Next is Genesis chapter 22. As we come to this portion of Scripture, let us ask the Lord to open our hearts and minds to the truth of the gospel. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning confessing, Lord, our need of your help and your intervention here. Lord, we think not sufficient of ourselves to think anything is of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. We praise you for the power of your word as we come to this important passage. And surely there are no unimportant passages of Scripture, but all those that point to the person and work of our Savior. We pray that you'd give light, that you'd open hearts and minds to the gospel. Show us the Savior, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The incident in the closing verses of Genesis chapter 21 and the record The account of God's command to Abraham to offer Isaac is all we know of a 35-year period in the record of Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac's life. In chapter 23, verse 1, we read that Sarah died at the age of 127 years. When she weaned Isaac, the scripture says that when she weaned him, she was around 92, 93. Chapter 21, verse 34 records and in chapter 22, verse 1, after these things denotes some time has passed. And so in the story before us, Isaac is no longer a child. In fact, he is a young man. Some say anywhere from his teens to 30 years old. He was 37, we know, when Sarah died. The word lad, some would point to in verse 5 and verse 12, but it has a very broad meaning. In the Hebrew, it is the word nayar, and it's often translated servant or young man. And the same word is used in verse 5 to refer to the servants that Abraham brought with him and that, that came with he and Isaac. And since this word is, the, is used in the same verse to refer to both Isaac and Abraham's servants, it is obvious that Isaac is a young man of considerable age, and while we will not strain it, and divide hairs here, it would not be unthinkable for him to be about the age of our Lord Jesus Christ when he was offered at Calvary. The years between Isaac's weaning and the events recorded here must have been happy and enjoyable ones. Father and son in fellowship and harmony. Abraham teaching his son the ways of the Lord. The lessons that he had learned, the failures, the mistakes, the warnings of Egypt and wrong decisions and of deceit, how God had called him and led him and carefully provided for him. He is a God who can be trusted, son. We can hear Abraham telling Isaac, you are proof of that. You are proof of a miraculous prayer-hearing God who keeps his word your evidence of a miracle working, graciously providing, guiding, and protecting Heavenly Father. For 50 years, God has been preparing Abraham for this hour, his life, for this very moment. And here we see the greatest test that Abraham would face. He would not have passed this test years before. It took all that God has done in Abraham's life to bring him to this place of obedience and acquiescence 
to the plan of God and to the will of God. It is interesting to note that God never tested Lot. In contrast to these two men, as far as the scriptures record, why is that, we might ask, since the Bible clearly reveals to us that Lot is a believer and that a faith that cannot be tested is a faith that cannot be trusted. We've seen that over and over again, that God always perfects the faith of his people. But Lot's life showed what was there. There was no need to reveal what was in Lot's heart and life. It was open for all to observe. What was inside was obvious by the choices that Lot made and the standards that he lived by. Lot was a shallow, surface person. All he cared about was luxury and appearance. He wanted a certain standard of living no matter what it cost him. And so Lot was left to himself. Perhaps the greatest discipline that God can give a person is to leave them over to themselves. Besides the events in his life, being kidnapped by marauding kings, all those things that God did allow that some might point to his test did nothing to perfect Lot, did it? And when it came to the hour of decision, they made no difference in his life whatsoever. But God tested Abraham. Oh, the severe, heart-wrenching test that God had for Abraham. And so we see in chapter 22, verse 1, And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham. We might ask, when did the test come? We see when in verse 1, it came to pass after these things. What things? All that had transpired up to now. That 50 years of God working and perfecting Abraham, ending with this heart-wrenching task of sending Ishmael and, and Hagar away. Over and over again, Abraham's pride and affections and possessions had been dealt with by the Lord, leaving his father leaving his homeland, no doubt a well-established life in Ur, to a place he did not know where he was going, leaving his home. The, the gifts of Sodom's king was a great temptation, no doubt, or could have been. And then Ishmael and Hagar, over and over again, Abraham's heart and his values and what he trusted in were, had been tested. Over and over, he had been brought to places where all he could do was surrendered to the all-wise will of a gracious and loving Father. With each test, with each surrender of his will to the perfect will of God, Abraham grew. He grew in grace. He, he grew in faith. He grew in trust in the, the loving Heavenly Father, a God who can be trusted. You don't just get to the place where there's a dagger in your hand at your son's throat and glibly say, the Lord will provide. God had brought Abraham to this understanding by this route that he had brought him on, that he was a God who could be trusted. And that's why we have the New Testament commentary by faith, Abraham offered Isaac. It was not by feelings, was it? What did it feel like for Abraham to receive this message and to have this task given to him? I ask you, what would it feel like for God to ask you to do such a thing? It felt like that. Finally, the Lord brought Abraham to this place. 
growing him in grace from that initial appearance to him in Ur of, of, of the Chaldees, preaching the gospel to him when he was in his sins, not knowing the one true creator God and God bringing him to this place of faith. From that time of salvation until now, God has been perfecting Abraham's faith. And if you are in grace, if you know Christ as your Lord and Savior, you realize that God is perfecting that which concerns you. He is perfecting your faith. Job, who had been greatly tested by the Lord, whose faith had been tested severely, said in Job 23, verse 10, He knoweth the way that I take. When he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Neither hath I gone back from the commandment of his lips. I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food, for he performeth the thing that is appointed for me. And many such things are with him. And then Job testifies in verse 16, For the Lord maketh my heart soft, and the Almighty troubleth me. I'm sure after a long period in Abraham's life when God had been silent, when out of the blue, it seems, this word came to him, silence, no direct word from God, and then this terse, cruel, humanly speaking command, get up and go to a mount that I will show you and offer to me Isaac. There's no way of saying it, but that Abraham's heart had to have been broken. Take now thy son, verse 2. Now, the imperative and the urgency of the matter, this is the appointed time. Do it now, Abraham. Don't pray about it. Don't think about it. Don't put it on your prayer list. Don't wait until convenient hour. Take now thy son, whom thou lovest. Notice the words that... The Lord uses that each with each one of them sends to make a, a deeper stab into Abraham's heart. Your only son, the son whom thou lovest, and offer him for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains which I will tell thee of. It's unthinkable. Absolutely beyond human thinking for such a command to be given. Here in this chapter, more than in any other place in Scripture. God displays, paints for us, portrays on a human level what, what will take place years later at Calvary and what it will mean to God the Father to offer up His own miraculously born and only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. What an object lesson. How gracious it is for God to show us that teaching in this way. To, to Abraham and to us of the Father's love for His Son in the awful cost of our salvation. We could, if it were possible, multiply what Abraham feels here a trillion times, a trillion, trillion, and not begin to understand the cost and the care and the love that God the Father had toward His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, when He gave Him up for sinners at Calvary. What a cost. And for whom? For wretches like us. What would he get for it? What would be the exchange for giving the darling of heaven? 
a group of rebels, of sinners. Verse 2 tells us it took place on one of the mountains in the land of Moriah. The word Moriah means foreseen of Jehovah. And it describes one of his characteristics, one of the attributes of our God, his omniscience. He sees and he knows all things, the end from the beginning. And we as his children should take great courage and great confidence in this attribute of our Lord who knows everything. He has all the facts. Nothing escapes, not one detail escapes his knowledge. And he uses all of that when he commands and when he guides and he leads the omniscience of our God. God was not caught off guard when Adam and Eve chose to sin in the garden, violating his clear command not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He was not surprised by that. He was not wringing his hands in in heaven saying, what will we do now? It's been messed up. Satan is one, and, and what are we going to do? That is not the mindset of the Godhead. All of it was seen beforehand by the Lord. And because of that, the triune Godhead in a predeterminate council had already drawn out the the grand scheme of salvation that would be required to save humankind. Revelation 13 verse 8 describes the Lord Jesus as the lamb slain from when? From the foundation of the world. From eternity past, the lamb was slain in the mind of the Godhead. Long before the Creator spoke worlds into existence or separated the dry land from the seas or set the planets in motion, He made provision for the salvation of men that would be required since man would sin and ruin the entire human race down to us in this very hour. But here, early the next morning, after Abraham received this word, this test... Oh, don't you hate tests? I never took a test I liked. Did you? I mean, I never made a test that I liked. Now, sometimes the the teacher would seem very, you know, large-hearted and say, I'm going to give you an open book test. Oh, beware of open book tests. It's all the worse when they give you a book to use. They're going to ask for things and look for things that, that you won't be able to see. Test. Oh, I break out in a cold sweat every time I think of tests. Perhaps because I was not the most studious of students, but test. I don't care what you call them, whether they're written or oral or whatever they are, they are a test after all, aren't they? A test. This command of the Lord, Abraham rose, saddled the ass, took two young men with him, and would... For a burnt offering, there's no mistake. Abraham has a clear picture of what's going to take place here. You don't make this kind of provision without knowing exactly what is to be expected, what God will require. He rose up with Isaac. The Bible tells us there early, verse 3, in the morning, and went to the place which God had told him. Do you think that Abraham slept one second that night? Can you imagine what wrestlings of heart, what thoughts flooded his mind? How could this be? How could I be here? How could I be brought to this place? And I'm sure, though the Holy Spirit is 
silent here that, that Satan must have brought those fiery darts of questions. This is what you get for leaving Ur, leaving your homeland, of trusting yourself over to this God. He is no different from the pagan gods. Think of the thoughts that could have flooded Abraham's heart and mind the night, that long, long night before he got up early in the morning to offer his son Isaac. We can only imagine what he went through, his heart and mind, all through that long night. I want you to notice in verse 1, though, the word tempt. This is the first time this word is used in Scripture. It is the Hebrew word nasah. It does not mean to tempt to do evil. As you know in the Scripture, that word, the English word tempt, is often used of a test. It can mean a solicitation to to, to sin, but that's not what it means in its context here. It means to test or to try. And in most cases, it is translated prove. Abraham was, was proved so that he could be approved. Dr. Henry Morris writes, The engineer may know full well that his design will stand the stress and the strain to which it is subjected because he knows it has been properly designed. But the construction specifications will require that it be tested, not to assure the engineer, but to assure the public that it will stand. God knew what Abraham would do. When you look at a test, this test is not for God, is it? There's nothing that God does not know. The test is not for God. God knew how Abraham would respond. We, we hear the Holy Spirit record that about Abraham in verses before. God said, I know him. He will command his children to follow after me. God knows our downsitting and uprising and our thoughts from afar. But Abraham and Sarah did not know. Those around them did not know, and they had to be shown that the Lord himself meant more to Abraham than Isaac did. Do you see that the tests that God allows for us, the tests that God plans for us are not just for us personally. We often think, well, you don't know what I'm going through. I'm just going through some deep stuff now. I mean, I'm, I'm in some situations, and it's all about us and what we're going through. But for the child of God, nothing is wasted and nothing is happenstance. And that test, that trial that the Lord is allowing you to go through is not just for you, not just to perfect your faith, but is to perfect the faith of others around us. We often see this in the life of a believer in those twilight days just before taking them home. And sometimes that may be in a very extended time. And the family around them wonder why the suffering and why does the Lord leave them here? And there's a lot of questions that come up in that time. But, but God always is not only working in that person's life, but in every person who comes in contact with them. The faith of others need to be perfected as well. To increase their faith, to perfect their faith. I was visiting one of our shut-in members just this past week, and the phone rang while we were visiting. And uh, it was a, a nurse or some medical person from the hospital. And the dear person just talked to them and used that as an opportunity to witness to them. And, and uh, when they hung up the phone, he said, I'm sorry, preacher, but I just, you know, that's one of my people that I talked to. And, and I thought, what a, what a wonderful thing that though this stage of his life, when he may feel that he's cut off from active circulation, actively 
reaching others. Every person that comes to his door or over his phone is open game. They must listen to him as he talks to them about the things of Christ. The Lord uses all circumstance for his honor and glory. But another word is introduced in this passage. The first word that we looked at is is the word test. But I want you to look at another word. It is the very first time that this important word is used in the Bible. And we see it in verse 2. He said, Take now thy son, thine only son, whom thou... Repeat after me, lovest. That is the first place in the scripture that the word love is mentioned. 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that the greatest of gifts is is love. It's a word we cannot describe. You'd be hard put if I were to tell you to write out in a paragraph the definition of love and really accurately put your feelings in a way that it can be understood. I loved at Valentine's Day to go into the card stores and watch the men sweat on their their forehead, looking at cards and putting it down and picking up another. I mean, it's like this is the hardest. That one won't do that. He's got to find that right card, that perfect card to describe his heart. It's so very hard to put it in words, isn't it? 1 John 4 verse 8 tells us that God is love. Throughout the Bible, but especially in the book of Genesis, the law of first mention is so vitally important because when an important word or an event or type is introduced for the first time, it usually sets the pattern for its basic usage and meaning throughout the rest of the Bible. And so we need to look at the context of how this love, this word love is used, what it's referring to. And it certainly does just that in verse 2, where the Lord says, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him therefore a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. It's interesting to note that when the word love is first used in the Bible, it isn't used of a love for a man, for his wife, or for a wife or a husband. It is not used in that context or of brotherly love or even that sublime love that has been immortalized in poems and literature of a mother's love for her children or even a man's love for God. The first time that that word is used in the scripture, it is used of a father's love for his son. Thy son whom thou lovest. It is used of the sacrificial offering of that only beloved, prized son. So we could say that the deep love of a father for his only son, yet a father willing to offer that son, is held up for us as the representative of the most complete and meaningful example of the very word, of the meaning of the word love in the Bible. The first time the Holy Spirit uses the word love in the Bible record, he uses it to reveal to us in this 22nd chapter of Genesis, in that great painting with all of its torrid colors of what Calvary's love looks like, the most tender, heart-wrenching love of all, the love of God the Father for God the Son. 
the Lord Jesus Christ. It is given to show us what sacrificial giving love looks like. It's very hard for us to understand. As we read this chapter, I'm sure those of you who have read this chapter have never read it without feeling uh, this feeling in your heart. How could this be? What a test. Oh, what a horrible thing to be asked to do. I don't think I could do that. I, I know all the human emotions and thoughts that go through our minds. How would we know what saving love looks like if God did not prepare it for us for it here and will display it to us throughout the gospel record? It is almost indescribable. And if the Lord did not give us this picture here in Genesis 22, we could never begin to understand Calvary's love. We have walked with Abraham as God promised to give him a son, and the long years of waiting, and the finagling with, with Hagar, and God refusing that, and over and over again, all that Abraham has been brought through, and then Isaac being given, and now he's been raised to be a fine young man. The delight of his father. We can only surmise the fellowship and harmony that Abraham and Isaac had. And then God says, now, get thee up, take Isaac, and offer him. Thy son, whom thou lovest. This is a picture, then, of God the Father's great, unfathomable love for his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. A love eternal from the foundation of the world. It is a love which is the foundation of every other type of love. The love of a husband for his wife and a mother for her children. One's love for their friends. All these flow from God's love for his son. Our Lord referred to this deep, deep love in John 17, verse 24, where he prays, Father, I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me. For thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. This first mention of love here in the story of Abraham and Isaac and Abraham offering his only Beloved Son shows us the divine planning and the very structure of the Bible. Here with the, the, the first mention of love in the Bible, we have a record of God's plan and purpose in all the rest of the Bible. The love of a father for his son, his only son. A love that, that pictures graphically the agony of the heart and the soul of both the father and the son. We've not even begun to surmise how Isaac is feeling here. The feelings of Isaac as being the, the sacrifice. Isaac is not stupid. He's not a little boy. He knows what's about to take place. And I want you to know there's no mention, not one mention, the Holy Spirit is silent that Isaac balked at this or rebelled in any way whatsoever. We see here as we're going to see as we study this portion of Scripture, the submission of the Son to the Father's all-wise and perfect will. What did that feel like to Isaac? The same way it felt to our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, as he prays there in the Garden of Gethsemane. The love of a father for his son. A love that pictures so graphically the agony between the two. And here we find in Genesis chapter 22, in Isaac and Abraham's willingness, their submission their acquiescence to the, the will of God to such an extravagant and lavish, dire sacrifice. A picture of Christ 
laying down his life for us on the cross of Calvary. In Matthew, the first of the gospel writers, in Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, we read, And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. That's the first mention of the word love in Matthew's gospel. And it's God the Father announcing his great love for his Son in his public obedience to following, setting the pattern of baptism there. Our Lord's baptism, God the Father speaks audibly from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son. The first mention of love in Mark's gospel is in Mark chapter 1, verse 11, where again we read, there came a voice from heaven saying, thou art my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The first mention of love in Luke is in Luke chapter 3, verse 22. And the Holy Ghost descended in bodily shape like a dove upon him and a voice from heaven which said, Thou art my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. As we enter the door of the New Testament record, the first mention of love in the first three Gospels is in reference to the Father's love for his Son our Savior, the Lord Jesus. And then we come to the Gospel of John. John is referred to as the beloved disciple. Do you know what the first mention of love in the Gospel of John, do you know where to find it? I'm sure you do. And I'm sure you could quote it with me. Surely we see the perfection of God's holy word the Holy Spirit's superintendence of the, the very structure of the Scripture because the first mention of love in John is found in John chapter 3 in verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Three times, God the Father proclaims his great love for his Son from the height of heaven, announcing it through the balconies of heaven, resounding down to the very depths of earth. This is my Son, and I'm very pleased with him, my only begotten Son. And then, in John's Gospel, he tells us that he loves us so much that he would give his Son the fact that he was willing to offer this well-beloved son for us in our place as payment for our sins so that we could be saved from eternal hell and from our own selves and our own sin. First John 4 verse 9 says, And this was manifested or shown openly, the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. Herein is love... Do you want to know what love looks like? This is love. Herein is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. I'm sure that Isaac loved his father, Abraham. 
I'm sure he was the delight of his life and the apple of his eye. But there's no way on earth that Isaac could love Abraham like Abraham loved Isaac. Here in his love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Let us pray. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, what love we see there of Isaac submitting to his father Abraham, the dagger raised, the wood arranged for a totally burnt offering. But what a greater picture is Calvary, where the darling of heaven, your only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who had come and taken on a body to reveal God to us. Did you not say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father? I and my Father are one. And we beheld his glory, even as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh. And dwelt among us. O Lord, we see there, we survey Calvary's mountain. And there we see the greatest of love displayed. The sinless one dying for us who have sinned. The perfect one dying for those who are filled with imperfection. The just for the unjust. O Father, I pray by your spirit that that you would show these things to us and to that one who may not have seen this until now, would you illumine them and show them in their hearts and minds by your Spirit that Christ is the sacrifice for their sin, that he is the door of salvation. Would you give them faith to believe and bring them that place of repentance and faith? We pray. We thank you that you are a God who can be trusted And your word tells us that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Lord, I pray that you would show these things to each one, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.